Hey, it's good to see everybody. Y'all doing well this morning? I missed you last week. Uh, it, was, it was good to have a little bit of vacation and be away for a little bit, but I did miss you guys, and it's good to be back. I want to start actually by just giving a, a little bit of a word of gratitude to Max and for Brad for leading us last week. Can we just put our hands together for them and their efforts? Obviously, Matt had a chance to preach, which was a little bit of a role reversal for him. Uh, Brad led us in worship as he's done many times before. Brad's not here with us this morning. Uh, his family was out of town, and so if you see him next week, please be sure to extend a word of appreciation to him. But part of the reason that they filled in for me was because we were on vacation, and uh, we've had a lot of trips. In fact, I feel like this summer in the Smith household has just been going from one trip to the next. I feel like I packed a suitcase in June 15th, and I have yet to unpack it. It's like, why bother? Because I'm leaving again here before too long. And, and I'm not complaining, because you have a chance to go to these places, and it's a lot of fun, and you get to see great, great things, spend time both at camp with things here related to church and things with family. Uh, but it does remind me, whenever I'm busy like this, that there's just something special about being home, right? I mean, just, it's just great to be home. And, and I started thinking about, what is it that makes you long to be back home. And I think there's a lot of ways we could answer that, but one of the things that I was reminded of this past week is that home is a place that has fewer restrictions, right? You can just kind of be yourself. So for example, last week uh, we were with my mom and my sister and their families and we were at the beach and for whatever reason, Jell-O became the snack of choice for everyone under the age of 12, okay? So between like my niece and my nephew and my two children, about 3,000 packs of Jell-O were consumed in the first two days of vacation. The problem with it was that the house that we were staying in uh, had a bunch of white furniture in the living room, okay? So you take white furniture and red jello and throw 12-year-olds and under into the mix and all sorts of problems are going to ensue. And so it's probably like day two or day three where we noticed the red jello stain on the, on the sofa. And so we had to start in, enforcing kind of like no eating zones in the living room. Everybody had to eat in the kitchen. And as soon as that policy was violated, it was kind of like jello enforcers, right? Like, get back in the kitchen. And it was really intense. And the reason was because the policy at the place we were staying was that if any was, anything was damaged or needed to be repaired, it was going to be like a $1,000 penalty, okay? So pretty steep fine. So I started thinking, like, what if I had that policy in my house, right? Like, every time my children had a stain, every scratch, every mark on the wall, like if that, man, I would, I'd be retired at this point. Seriously, I mean, I wouldn't even have to worry about finances if I had that same policy. But that's not how you live at home, is it? Right? I mean, scratches are going to happen, stains are going to happen, toys aren't going to get picked up, sometimes the dishes you don't get to, sometimes laundry piles up, and it's okay. That's what makes it home, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. Another way to say it is that Home is where we really have a tendency to find grace, right? Grace is kind of what leads us home. And I say that to you this morning because that's somewhat indicative of the Christian life in general, isn't it? That, that we are destined to be with God the Father. That's where our home truly is. That's where we long to be. And what is compelling us towards him is his grace. His grace is leading us home. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at grace, but I will tell you, we're going to look at it through a slightly different perspective, some familiar elements, but it's going to hopefully enrich our understanding of grace. And, and while we'll look at it through a couple of different lenses, I believe that's what we'll ultimately see is how his grace leads us home. So if you have your Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 3. We're just going to be on one verse today, 3 verse 10. We started chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, and let me just offer a quick reminder of some of the things that we've discussed 
Uh, when we introduced this chapter, we saw that Jonah begins to fall into the background and it really begins to just center on the Ninevites and their response to the Lord. And so what we begin to see is that their response is pretty impressive, right? From greatest to the least, they begin to fast and clothe themselves in sackcloth. And one of my favorite um, revelations that we find in chapter 3 that Matt had a chance to speak on last week is the response of the king, right? Who, who he says there when he begins to embrace what the message had been brought to Jonah is he says, who knows? Who knows? The Lord may still relent in his compassion, turn from his fierce anger, and we won't perish. And I love that mentality, right? Because that mentality in some way should challenge us, shouldn't it? Because I, I feel like a, kind of a subconscious tendency that we have in our relationship with the Lord is to make it more transactional in nature. Right? Okay, Lord, I'll do this as long as these things work out for me. That's not the king, right? The king says, who knows, good or bad? I don't know how this is going to work out. Either way, I'm going to give him my whole heart, my whole devotion. And that's such a great model for us. And so it's that sort of response from the Ninevites that shows us what's about to transpire in chapter 3, verse 10. So let's take a look with that sort of response from Nineveh. What do we see God do in response? Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Okay, so this is a remarkable verse. This is a remarkable turn of events, okay, because for the first two full chapters and nine verses, what we've seen is that God has sent Jonah to preach against Nineveh because of its evil, because of its wickedness, right? We, we can see this. In fact, the message that Jonah reveals to the Ninevites in chapter 3 is, hey, in 40 days, your city's going to be overthrown. It's going to be destructed. So if you're reading this for the first time or you don't know any better, you're kind of anticipating some massive carnage. You're, you're anticipating this overthrow, but then all of a sudden... You get to verse 10, and Nineveh isn't destroyed, it's saved. It's spared. Why? What happened? What, what has changed this really important word in verse 10 that I want to camp out on for a little bit is this idea that God relented. Okay, the, the Hebrew word, root for it, I believe, is pronounced nahum. Okay, and it's, and it's this idea of consoling, of comforting, or to change one's mind. Now think about that for a moment. This is a question I want us to wrestle with the first part of this message. Here's the question that verse 10 brings to mind. Does God change his mind? Or perhaps a better way to ask the question, or a more important way to ask the question is, can we change his mind? That's a really important question. And here's how I want to go about it today. The first thing I want to do is establish for you why I believe it's so important. Okay, And then I want to spend a little bit of time uh, offering a disclaimer as to how we're not going to answer that question and then I'm going to try to answer it before we get to verse 10. Okay, so stay with me for a little bit. Here's why it's important. Okay, the first reason it's important is really this is going to be a question that helps us better understand God. And the more we understand God, the greater our trust will be. So the first thing it helps us understand is it helps us understand his nature, his character, his essence, right? The way in which we understand God's character and nature is going to influence how we relate to him and how we relate to the world around us. If you see God as judgmental, vindictive, and angry, and harsh, that's going to influence how you relate to him and people around you. If you see God as gracious, compassionate, kind, slow to anger, abounding in love, that's going to influence how you react to him and people around you. 
So what we're speaking of here when we ask the question, can we change God's mind, is we're asking about his sovereignty. And that's going to really be influential with how we relate to him. Is God stubborn and unmoving? Is he constantly changing his mind and indecisive? Like, how do we understand his sovereignty? Now, that's one reason why it's important. The second is, is when we begin to ask about God's sovereignty, it's eventually going to spill over into our understanding of God's will for our lives personally. I mean, at some point, yes, we've heard the stories, we understand the scriptures, but at some point we say, okay, what does it mean for me? I see that God's got a good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is it for my life? What, what should I pursue? How does that influence my job, my career, my family? So we begin to formulate these ideas of God's plans for our lives. So what happens when those plans don't work out? How do we make sense of those moments? Is that God changing his mind? Did we misunderstand? Like if you're 15 years old and you feel like God puts this prompting in your heart to be a teacher and you spend the next eight years of your life working to that end and then the moment finally comes for you to fulfill this calling only to have something happen that closes all the doors. It could be anything. It could be that a recession hits, right, and there's no opportunity. It could be that you actually take the job and then you get fired. Or maybe some external factors happen around you. There's illness. There's a loss of a loved one and you can't pursue it. How do you make sense of those moments? How do you understand God's sovereignty when those plans don't work out? Can you change his mind? Are you walking in disobedience? It's an important question to understand in our own personal journey. The third reason it's important is it's gonna help us understand the scripture. Okay, let me, let me just tease the answer for you a little bit. There are several scriptures that are gonna absolutely suggest that God never changes his mind. And you know what? There are gonna be other scriptures that suggest he absolutely does. And so if you extract those scriptures and lay them on the table next to each other, it's going to make it seem as if the Bible is contradictory. It's going to make it feel confusing. How do I make sense of this? And so what we need to do today is not allow that confusion to settle in, but try to shape a, a more complete narrative so that we can see it more clearly of how his sovereignty works. Now, when we seek to understand his character and understand his will for our lives and understand his scriptures, what does that create? Trust. The, the, the less we understand, the more likely we are to go our own way. Okay, so that's why it's important. Let me tell you what we're not going to do, though, when we begin to wrestle with this. This question, can we change God's mind, kind of begins to, to lead us into an age-old debate that has existed in the church for centuries. Right? It's the question of predestination and free will. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, and maybe, or maybe you did, and that's the first time you heard those terms, let me explain to you what I mean by that, right? It's the question of, is everything predetermined, right? Is it all set in course according to God's sovereignty, or is there an element of choice, right? Is there an element of free will that can be at play? Let me give you an example as it relates to Jonah, right? The question for Jonah chapter 3 would be, did God always intend to save Nineveh? That was his plan from the beginning, regardless of what he said, regardless of the message, that was always his intent. Or, did he actually intend to destroy it? But because the Ninevites chose to, to respond the way that they did, he changed his mind. Right? It's the questionation. Was it determined or was there choice? So, so this is an important question, okay? And we're going to dip our foot into that water, but we're not going to swim into the deep end of the pool. This is not a sermon that's going to sell out to answer that question. Here's why. Here's what happens when people begin to swim into the deep end of the pool of this predestination and free will thing. The first thing is, is we start to lose what's really productive. 
This happens a lot in theological and philosophical debates. You kind of lose sight of what really matters. I, I took a lot of philosophy classes when I was in college, and I'll never forget this one class. This teacher, she presented this question to the class. She said, suppose the earth completely froze, so much so that it stopped spinning on its axis. If this happened, would time cease to exist? And she asked it with such curiosity and intrigue. And many people in the class began to respond with thoughtful discussion. And the whole time I'm sitting there in my chair going, who cares? Like, the world is not going to freeze over. Elsa has it under control. She's not letting it go anymore. Like, we're okay. And if it does freeze over, that's the last question I'm going to have in my mind. Like, it doesn't matter. So a lot of times we swim into these important questions, but we get so lost, they stop being productive. Okay, so that's one reason why I want to caution against it. The second is, is what I've seen happen in the, I guess, the framework of American Christianity is once we really start swimming in the deep end, we start defining ourselves by other labels, right? And we begin to declare loyalty to theologians and ideas more than we do to Christ. And so we start to carry the label of Reformed or Arminian or Calvinist and all these different things. I don't want to discourage anyone from reading thoughtful theologians and thoughtful ideas. That's absolutely necessary. Do not define yourself by them. That is not the label that matters. I want us as a church wrestling with the merits of Scripture more than I do want us wrestling with the five points of Calvinism, okay? Which leads me to my third point. The reason I always caution against going too far into this debate is that that's where you often find division, right? Because when you really get in the deep end, that's where you find the extreme positions and you start casting stones at the other side, brothers and sisters, accusing them of certain things. And it, create, it has created division in the church. Right? And, and that is exactly what the devil wants. And it reminds me of this quote that, that I remember reading of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Um, I can't actually remember the specifics of the chapter, but I, this quote always stuck with me, and I think it applies here. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about these sorts of opposing sides. He says, I feel a strong desire to tell you, and I expect you feel a strong desire to tell me which of these two errors is the worst. That's the devil getting at us. He always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking, which is the worse? You see why, of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight between both errors. Man, that, I love that. That's exactly what happens. We find this happen in so many different realms of life where we have these two extreme positions and we begin to grow such a strong distaste for the other that we just fall into the other one and they're both at fault. You see it politically a lot, correct? And, and we're, we're choosing sides based on what we refuse to align with. And so here's what I mean. Here's the extreme position in this discussion on predestination and free will. The extreme position for predestination is ultimately trying to wrestle with, well, if God orchestrates everything, then he's an orchestrator of evil. How do I make sense of all the evil I see around me? The extreme position for free will is that God's lost control. Right? He's all, he's just waiting for us to choose. Right? He's reacting to us. It becomes a very mankind-centric theology. Neither position can be supported by Scripture. Okay? So we have to go through the middle somehow. And here's how I recommend you go through it. Um, be comfortable with not knowing everything. <laughs> God's sovereignty can't be put into words. And it's okay if we don't know. 
There's a beautiful mixture of his sovereignty and choice that exists, right? And we see that. We see this this reminder that it is impossible for us to grasp that which is infinite. We can't grasp him entirely, right? 1 Corinthians 1, his foolishness is greater than our wisdom. So let's move into this, seeing the importance of trying to wrestle with it, seeing the scriptures, but doing so with humility, knowing that we can't fully articulate how his sovereignty really works. Okay, with all that said, we're going to touch on it, but that's about as far as we're going to get. So let's see what the scriptures say. Let me give you a few examples of God's sovereignty and his unchanging nature. Okay, now there are, there are several others that I could have chosen. Let me just give you a few. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's some really good ones. Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. 1 Samuel 15, 29, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Numbers Numbers 23, 19 is almost exactly like it. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? All right, so those, those scriptures seem to clearly suggest, along with several others, that, that God doesn't change, right? He's consistent. There are things that are predetermined. However, there are numerous passages that would suggest otherwise. Like you could look at stories like Abraham and, and when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, take your son, your one and only son whom you love, go sacrifice him. God told him to do that. And in the moment Abraham grabs the knife, what does God say? Nope, never mind, do something else. It kind of feels like he, he changes his mind in the moment. Maybe, maybe not. The best way for us to answer this scripturally is to piggyback on this word that we find in Jonah 3, relent. Okay, it's not just in chapter 3. We see this throughout the pages of scripture. You go back to Exodus. Moses brings his people up out of Egypt, and they go out, and Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and while he's up there, what happens? They worship an idol. God's furious. And he tells Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm starting over with you. And, and Moses pleads with him, begs with him. In Exodus 32, 14, God relents, changes his mind. Amos chapter 7, verse 3, verse 6, very clearly says, the Lord relents, the Lord relents. Perhaps the, the best passage for us to use to better understand Jonah chapter 3 can be found in the prophet Jeremiah. Two passages that we have there. We've referenced one of them before in some of the earlier messages. Chapter 18, verse 7 says this, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent. I will change my mind and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. You find something very similar in Jeremiah 26, 3. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. So how do we make sense of all that? Here's here's my summary to to help us begin to understand what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. God doesn't change, right? He is consistent in his sovereignty. And part of what he has said is that there is sin, there is wickedness, there is evil, and it will be dealt with. That can be relied upon. That can be considered as trustworthy. However, God has also determined that there is a way to escape 
that punishment, that he will, in certain situations, relent. He will change his mind. And so what we see is that God reveals his sovereignty not through stubbornness, but through grace. That's what relenting is showing us, this this God of grace. And so what is it that, that prompts or leads to him relenting? What is it that we can do to experience that change where he changes his mind and we get to escape from this sin? Well, what we see consistently in several of those passages and what we see explicitly in Jonah chapter 3 is this idea of repentance. And that's where we can begin to work through the next part of this verse, that what's going to help change God's mind or give us an insight to this relentance, this comfort, this grace, is repentance. So what do we see about repentance in Jonah 3 verse 10. The, the first thing that we're going to see about repentance is when it says, when God saw what they did. Now I love that phrase, what they did. That phrase actually speaks to works, practices, labor, deeds. I love that. Because you and I oftentimes have a small conception of repentance. Repentance is so much more than just thinking about it. We actually have to work towards it. A lot of times we reduce repentance to offering a prayer of confession where we say, all right, Lord, I'm sorry that I did this. That's a good prayer. That's not repentance. That's an apology. Repentance works. It's, It's inner transformation that leads to external action. And one of the things I love about this word is it does imply the idea of labor. Repentance doesn't happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. You have to continue to work at it day after day after day, right? And so what is the work of repentance? Well, this verse in chapter 3, verse 10 has a very important word, right? There's a lot of ways that repentance is described throughout the scriptures, but perhaps one of the most comprehensive words that we have for it is the word turn. When God saw what they did, what did they do? They turned from their evil ways. This this is the Hebrew word uh, subah, I think is the right way to pronounce it. And it carries with it the complete uh, explanation of what repentance looks like. It's a two-part process. It's turning from evil and turning wholly to God. That's the work of repentance. And so I want us to kind of break that down for a moment. What does it mean to turn from evil? Well, evil is another word that we've seen used consistently in Jonah. Right? And it's been translated as wickedness. It's been translated as destruction. It's been translated as evil. It is consistently throughout this passage. And so what we see is that Ninevites have turned from their evil ways. So that's the first step to repentance. Here's where we often misconceive uh, what that looks like in our own lives. We start thinking about wickedness and evil as these extreme examples. right? Murder, um, massive addiction, drug use. I mean, f- fill in the blank of what it is for you. And so you think, well, okay, well, I don't, I'm not that wicked. I'm a pretty decent person. And we lose sight of what really the heart of sin looks like. If you go back to the garden, here's the heart of sin. The heart of sin desires to eat from the tree of knowledge of what? Good and evil. Which is a, which is a way of saying that we desire to know right and wrong for ourselves. We wanted to be the ones to determine good and evil, not God. So the impulse of sin is when you and I begin to listen to ourselves and trust our own inclinations, our own impulses, that we go our own way. I get to decide what's right. I get to decide what's wrong. I get to decide what's greedy. I get to decide what's gossip. I get to decide. And we've set our own metric in place. 
And the problem with that is that it leads to destruction. Proverbs 14 says there is a way that seems right to mankind, but in the end it leads to death. So a lot of times we struggle with repentance because we don't realize we're on a road that's going to hurt us. We don't realize we're in danger. Listen, greed will destroy you. No matter how good it feels to bring in that paycheck, no matter how good it feels to buy one more item of comfort and luxury, rich or poor, your love of money can destroy you. Right? Resentment, bitterness can destroy you. The inability to, to forgive somebody else, nobody, no matter what they did to you, to refuse to reconcile to them, that, that sort of resentment can kill you. Lust. What you look at, what you fill your mind with, those things can destroy you. So we, we make these choices and we rationalize them and we don't realize that we're putting ourselves in danger. If we knew we were in danger, we would have a totally different response. Let me give you an example. Um, I've told you before, I love dogs, right? Uh, and one of the reasons that uh, they're the dog or the pet of my choice is not only are they fun, but they're kind of good to have around the house. And one of the purposes that they serve is they're, they're good kind of uh, alarm system, right? You know if somebody's coming up to your house, they're usually going to make some noise and bark. Now, a really great watchdog is not just going to alert you that somebody's there. They're actually going to scare somebody off, okay? Um, I've never really had a good watchdog, okay? Most of the dogs that I've had are the small, yippy dogs that just, they're not going to scare anybody. For example, when I was little, we had this small Sheltie, and she barked, yes, when people came to the door. She barked at birds. She barked at squirrels. She would even bark when my mom would get foil out in the kitchen, okay? She was slightly neurotic, and, and so we always knew when somebody was at the house. Problem was, her name was Princess, okay? And so, like, if intruder comes in, that's not going to strike fear in the heart of an intruder, like, get him, Princess, you know, like, so she goes already not intimidating, but to make matters worse, people would walk into our house, she would come up and start barking at him, and when you would reach down to pet her to calm her down, she would just pee all over the floor, right? So... She had really high social anxiety, okay? And so, like, small dog that is neurotic with high social anxiety ain't scaring anybody, okay? You're, you're just going to keep on going. Let me give you a different picture. So a couple months ago, it was March, and it was uh, Bethany and Elijah's wedding, if you all are familiar with Bethany and Elijah, young couple here in our church. And uh, they had asked me to officiate the wedding, and my wife was, was taking the pictures, so I got there early with, with Jennifer. It was in Waxahachie, kind of one of those beautiful venues outdoor. And so I had a lot of time to kill, and I wanted to walk through my notes for the ceremony. And so I was looking for a good place to do that where I wouldn't be a distraction. And I looked over across the way, and I saw this house that, that looked like it was on the property. I mean, there was no, like, fence line or anything to suggest otherwise. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe those are the offices, and there's a little back patio outdoor seating there. Okay, I'll go over there, and maybe I can just walk through my notes over there. So I start walking across this field, and I get fairly close to this back patio when I see like through this, this window here, these two people rise up and come to this screen door. And, and they come, and I pretty much immediately know I've made a mistake because they've got this really intense look of like interrogation. And they're like, what are you doing here? And so I kind of realize I've offended them. And so I try to apologize. I'm like, oh, well, I thought this was like the offices for the wedding venue. And the response was, does this look like a wedding venue to you? And I was like, oh, they're like really upset. So she actually like opens the door and begins to step out on the patio to like increase the intimidation factor. Well, the whole time that she had stood up, I started to hear a dog barking in the house. And so when she opened that sliding door, I hear the barking like run out on the patio and start to round these bushes. I couldn't see what sort of dog it was initially. A lot of dogs I wouldn't mind seeing in that moment. Send me a lab, no big deal. Labs love people, would have been okay with it. Send a chihuahua, would have been all right with it. Send me princess, you know, and I would have been totally fine with princess. 
I saw a pit bull running straight at me, okay? It was like I had an officer pulling his gun on me. I froze, put my hands up. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like I completely stopped. And this dog came running at me and I literally prepared myself for the sensation of it just like ripping into my leg. And I thought, this is how it ends for me. Like I'm gonna die at a wedding at the mercy of a pit bull. And so it comes right up to my leg and stops. And I just start crying for mercy. I'm like, please call your dog away. Please call your dog away. I mean, it was really humbling for me in the moment. And so, and so she did, thankfully, and the dog barked at me a little bit longer and then finally went back on the patio. And as soon as it kind of got on the patio, I just went, shoom. And I mean, I just went the other direction, right? That's repentance, right? Yeah, you got me. You're with me. That's repentance because that was an, an immediate awareness of danger, of destruction, right? If I had continued, that would not have been a good experience, correct? Right? But as soon as you realize what can happen, you stop and you turn the other way. Man, too many of us in here are on a path of destruction and we don't even realize it. That's the greater concern. And what I believe God is doing today is sending us this message to say, wake up. Consider your choices. Your voice is not to be trusted. That path, no matter how innocent it may seem, is leading towards destruction. Stop. Go the other way. So what is it in your life that you need to turn from? That's step one. Step two, turn wholly to God. It's more than just abstaining from evil. It's fully surrendering to his kingdom. We can, we can fool ourselves that we've lived pretty good lives and still withhold from the Lord. But this is what we see consistently in Jonah, right? After his rebellion, he finally submits himself wholly to God's will for his life. The Ninevites, after all of that wickedness, they finally submit themselves wholly to God's will for their life. We see the submission in Jonah. We see it in the Ninevites. Is it true for you? Have you fully devoted yourself to the Lord? This is something I've wrestled with throughout my whole life. I wish it hadn't taken me as long as it typically takes me. A couple years ago, some of you all have heard this story, right, that I, I was convinced my family, we were going to be overseas, we were going to be missionaries, and then that door closed. And when it closed, I had to do a lot of introspection as to, to what that meant. And what I discovered was that so much of my calling in my life, I'd been putting on hold, right? Th these promptings to, to live a certain way, to share my faith a certain way, to pray a certain way, to live a certain way for my family. Well, wait till I'm overseas, God, then I'll do it. And in that moment, I realized when that was removed that that call was not contingent upon a location or a point in time. And if God was calling me to be a missionary, I needed to be a missionary whether I was in India or Fort Worth. And so I repented. I said, Lord, I've been holding back. I have not fully surrendered to you. Now, y'all, I still struggle because it's work, right? But the level of desire for that obedience and that devotion has changed. We have to recognize that we live in a culture, while it has so many advantages, there are times where we can curate this Christianity and abstain from evil and have all these things and have this perfect little Sunday, Wednesday, occasional quiet time type of life and never fully devote ourselves to the Lord. It is every day, yes, Lord, who knows what it means for me, good or bad, I'm yours. That's repentance. And when we turn from our sin and self and we fully devote ourselves to the Lord, that's when we get to see the beauty of a God that relents. And so what we begin to see is this amazing reality of who our God is, right? That the sinner 
despite God's declaration of how sin is going to be, the, the sinner's destiny can be changed. Every single one of us, nation, individual, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. The path to experience it is through repentance. Our destiny can change. God's amazing sovereignty is not manifested to us through his stubbornness, but through his grace. And the way in which we fully begin to have it experienced in our lives is through repentance. This is the message that was given to the prophets, and it's the message that came through Jesus himself. For what did Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent. Believe the good news. And it became the message that was handed on to his followers. We heard it sounding out at Pentecost, and it should ring true in our hearts today, right? When Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God by many signs, miracles, and wonders. He was God's chosen plan. And it was determined that this Jesus would be handed over to a wicked generation. And that wickedness of that generation, along with our brokenness, would ultimately nail him on the cross. But what does Peter say? God resurrected him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because death could not hold him down. Right, that now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And you and I can be assured of this, that God has taken this Jesus and made him both Lord and Messiah. And when we hear this story, the only question we can ask is, what then shall we do? And the answer is, repent. Turn from your sin and self and give yourself wholly to him. Oh, when we do that, we see the sovereignty of a God who is willing to relent, who is willing to comfort one who is changing his mind. And that's when we see his grace. So what does it mean for you today? There's some of you in here today, there is something in your life you have to turn from, and I want you to name it. When you have a moment to spend that time of response with God here in a second, in your own heart, in your own mind, I want you to identify what it is that you need to confess and turn from. Some of us in here, man, we've been holding back. We haven't fully devoted ourselves to the Lord. We need to fully devote ourselves to him. And it's turning from that evil, devoting ourselves fully to him, that we see the beauty of this God who changes his mind, who relents, and we get swept away in this grace that leads us home. Let's pray. Father, that's what we long for. We long for your grace. We long for your mercy. And so today, Father, as we come before you, I pray that you would help us see the areas in our life where we are in error, the areas in our life where we have put ourselves on a path towards destruction. And I pray for those of us that need it, Father, we would be able to confess it to you and, and do more than just offer a word of an apology, but truly do the work of turning in another direction. Father, that we could see the beauty of who you are and not hold back, no matter the fears, no matter the concerns, but may we trust you fully and devote ourselves to you. We are grateful that you are a God who sees us in our brokenness and gives us grace. May we worship you accordingly for that amazing gift. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen and amen.